21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Greetings, everybody. I want to sincerely thank you all for tuning in to the 75th episode of my Run Your Life podcast series. I had the chance to sit down with my friend Frank Stepnowski over the Christmas holidays to record this episode that you're hearing today. It's actually the third time that I had Frank back on my show, so I guess it speaks volumes for what I think about the guy. Frank, an author of four books, a committed family man, and passionate educator who resides in Cinnaminson, New Jersey, has devoted the last 25 years to the teaching profession. Frank is one of those special educators who places great value on the role that a teacher can play in making a difference in the lives of the students that they teach. He is also a strong voice and a guardian of the profession and through his writing sheds light on just how difficult it can be to be a teacher in America, in a system that often fails its educators by placing overwhelming constraints and demands on them that are oftentimes excruciatingly difficult to overcome. Despite these obstacles he has been up against, time and again in his career, Frank is a gem of a teacher who strives to make learning relevant and meaningful in order to engage and motivate his students to find their own voice and their own truth. As a power lifter who has sought refuge in this physical endeavor, he has pushed his body and mind to the limit, which, as you will hear, has cost him his health in the past. Once standing in at a solid six foot four and 290 pounds, Frank has transformed himself over the past year, shedding 80 pounds. Although he still powerlifts and is physically active, he now has a much greater appreciation for his health and his family. Frank stands tall among our profession and is willing to put in the endless hours of sacrifice to continue making a difference in the lives of those who he serves. We recorded this episode in late December 2017, and since that time, Frank lost his father to a battle with cancer. I would like to extend my condolences to Frank, but as he said in the podcast, his dad taught him to do everything right the first time because it takes way more time and energy to fix the mistakes made from a careless first attempt. I've no doubt that Frank will continue to live and teach boldly, doing it right every step of the way. 
I sincerely hope you enjoy my episode with the one and only Frank Stepnowski, affectionately known as Step. Everybody, thank you very much for listening. Frank, it's uh, great to have you back on the show. When I when I think back, uh, this is you're the only guest that has been on three times, uh, besides Neela Steele, of course, my wife, who's been on uh, the Mindfulness Podcast. But uh, when we were talking in the pre-show, we talked about how a year ago already, um, we recorded uh, the second podcast, you and I, uh, live from Italy. And now it's a year later. We're a year older, a year smarter, a year wiser. Um, and we are recording this podcast. You are in New Jersey, and this time I am in Hiroshima, Japan, and it is absolutely wonderful to have you back on the show, my friend. So, so thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. I do remember that last interview fondly. Uh, it's weird that it's been a year, uh, and I hope that we're a year smarter, wiser, <laughs> better than we were last time should be interesting. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Yeah, and it's been really great following your journey over the past few years. But in particular, the last year has been, uh, I would call it a special year for you because a lot of a lot of really good things have happened in your life. Um, first of all, last year at this time, you had just finished up, uh, you were in the hospital for a surgery. Um and you just say a little bit about what, just paint the picture. Where were you a year ago? What was happening in your life? And then fast forward us to present day and, and some of the, the changes that you've experienced as a result of, of that, that whole thing. Uh, so December 14th was, is a year uh, post-op. I had gastric sleeve surgery. That was the major. I had a hernia fixed and I had my gallbladder removed also. Uh, for someone who fancied himself a very, very healthy individual, apparently my years of picking up heavy things and running with them and doing stuff like that led to severe exercise-induced hypertension. That's real. I really thought my wife was paying the doctors to say that. But long story short, my blood pressure was in the um, you're going to drop dead zone for way longer than I ever knew. Uh Last holiday, as my children have pointed out this holiday, I was a much more miserable person because <laughs> I couldn't eat, uh, couldn't work out. So they took away food, lifting. If it wasn't for heavy music, I, there probably would have been a trail of dead bodies around here at Christmas. Um, I am a year later, 101%, not to be hyperbolic, uh, healthier, uh, still much more focused, much more active. The thing that bothered me the most was I was... I didn't have the relentlessness that I had before in terms of my ability to focus, concentrate, do multiple things. So, and with a lot of things that have happened this year, um, all my kids being in college, my stepson being here, my wife taking on additional responsibilities at work, and both of my parents, my father in particular, are very sick. I don't know that the old me, I hate to sound like a cliche, would have been able to be what I need to be for all those people if I wasn't I mean, we talk about all you and I talk all the time about the the very clear connection between your physical health and your mental and emotional health and my new physical health facilitated my ability to be what I needed to be for all those people um, on a 
completely personal note, could not be better. Um, faster, stronger, healthier, more cardiovascularly fit, more focused than I've ever been. And I'm, as you know, I'll be 50 in less than a month. And I, I can't tell you that I feel like I was 20. I didn't feel this good when I was 20. I have 30 years of working out behind me and a little bit of wisdom, a little bit. With I literally get to know now what I should have known then, and I'm not going to mess this up. My wife has said to me, and she's a doctor, you know, she's yeah. said to me a couple of times, like, you know, I'm dragging myself to the gym, clearly tired, or I'm going out the room, like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm Ebenezer Scrooge. I, I was given a second chance. Mm -hmm. No surprise, that's my favorite Christmas movie, but yeah. I fully believe that I was given a second chance. I'm not messing this up. I'm not, I'm not going to ruin this. I'm going to take full advantage of this. And you are 80 pounds lighter, <coughs> 70 pounds lighter. How much lighter are you now? Um, right now I'm 80 pounds lighter 80 than I was pounds um, lighter. December 5th of last year. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and it's been great to see the, the pictures of you back working out uh, over the past several months. And uh, just seeing the, the evolution of uh, your physical self and how it's changed. And um, one of the big reasons why I wanted to have you back on the show is our, our personal connection behind the scene. Uh, we stay in touch all the time. Um, we're always talking about our learning and, and uh, just kind of challenging each other to, to learn and grow. And, but recently you just published, uh, is it your fourth book? Yes, sir. Yeah. So what were the titles of the first three, first of all, for the listeners out there? Uh, the first one, 2009, Why Are All the Good Teachers Crazy? Um, a, a profane but very funny romp through my initial years as a teacher with um, what were then known as severely emotionally disturbed children uh, and my naivete and and intro to like basically building relationships with kids and all the funny stuff that went along with it uh the second book was called screwed an acronym for step comedically relates exactly why education is doomed more of a fantasy i open a school of my own and all the things that would happen along with it cathartic right uh third one teaching sucks but we love it uh deliberately pg rated conversation mm -hmm. with parents and people that aren't familiar with the education system about this is what really goes on when your kids are with us for 90% of their waking hours. And then the last one, um, as my, my editor, uh, and dear friend, Ed Trouts, it was, he was so worried about this one, mm -hmm. uh, legitimately. So because it was like all the anger and profanity that, and confrontationalism that did not come out in the third book backed up and exploded in the fourth one. Uh, and the fourth one is retribution. A teacher strikes back. Uh, I said I wasn't going to write anymore. I wanted a nice trilogy and walk away. And I actually talk about that at the beginning of the book. I'm not going to, and I'm not after this one, I'm not going to write any more books about education, maybe the occasional article, blog, podcast. Yeah. But this one um, and again, I hate to sound like a cliche, but it had to be written. This one took three years of my life, a lot of editing that, that animal did not look the same as it did three years when I started, you know, mm -hmm. raising it. Uh, it changed. I, f I fully believe that the first three books I said, I'm not an author. I'm a guy who writes books. I'll say I'm a professional author now because the machinations that went into this, the revisions, the editing, this dealing with the publishers, everything 
uh, was a long, arduous taxing process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can tell you the truth. The reason I want, I want this book to be successful. The other ones, I just wanted to get them out. They need to be out of me. There were a lot of people involved in this. Uh, and it's a message that I think, again, it's an acquired taste. You've read my stuff. It's it's pretty in your face, but this needed to be told. Yeah. And this comes at a perfect time with the new star Wars too. eh? (laughs) You know, you've got the star Wars theme going on with the front cover. Um, but I guess like yeah, I gotta say, can I give a shout out to Tommy Castagna, my, my absolutely guy? Because yes. I know that I'm the ultimate pain in the ass. Like he's a graphics guy, and when I go, you know, I want the cover to look kind of Star Warsy. Mm-hmm. I know that he must like cringe and want to punch me over the phone. But <laughs> yeah. then five minutes later, I get this. My buddy Jason that did the balloon me on the back. I'm like, I want it to look like me from the first book. Can you do that? I only ask the impossible, and they all deliver it, and they don't want anything back. It's like I'm, I'm ridiculously fortunate. Yeah, I'm very, very grateful for that. Right? Um, Talk about with retribution. Why, you know, why did it mean so much to you? Like, what were some of? If you had to sum up some of the the biggest themes in the book that you feel educators need to hear about. What would those themes be? First and foremost, the, the title is very specific. Uh, I was pissed off. I was, I was very tired of politicians, parents, air quotes, educational reformers, and people that have, you know, people don't have the first flying fuck what I do for a living telling my brothers and sisters in education and the people that bust their butt for minimal, you know, money and no regard in a essentially anti-teacher environment here in America, for mm-hmm. sure. I was tired. of n- Nobody wants to speak back. Nobody wants to speak up or talk back or, or confront because one, they're actively employed and they don't want to lose their job. And I thought this, this will not pass. This will not happen. Like I, I'll, I don't care. I'm mm-hmm. going to speak back and you're going to hear my side of the story now. Like it says on the back of the book, I've heard what they all have to say. Now it's my turn. Yeah. And I'm in the field. I'm, I'm so tired. And I hear other teachers obviously talk to me, emails, Skypes, Facebook, Twitter, quietly, like on the side, like, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe you've read most of the reviews. Now the online reviews, say essentially the same thing. Thanks for saying what we wanted to say. Yeah. Somebody had to do it. And, yeah. and it, the, the biggest theme was not, not so much re- retaliation or retribution as, as you're going to hear our side of the story. Like you're hearing one side of the story from the uninformed side. Yeah. You know, you're, you're a guy, you're not even in the stands. You're at home on TV watching the football game, telling the professional quarterback how to do his job. Yeah. You are eminently unqualified. And quite frankly, in the case of educational reformers and politicians, your what your goal is runs contrary to ours. You're telling me how to educate children. You have no frame of reference for how to do this, and in a lot of cases, what you're doing is the, is the opposite of what they need. So screw you and the horse you rode in on. You're going to hear the truth from me, and I'm going to name names, and I'm going to say it the way I feel it. So a lot of it was hopefully empowering other teachers, at least letting them know they're not alone. What are some and of those truths? Speaking up for the profession. 
what are some of those truths that you you really hold close to your heart that you wanted to present? One that the the overwhelming uh, obsession with standardized testing mm-hmm. runs counter to educating kids. Two that teachers are somehow uh, underworked and overpaid. It was it's one of the greatest jokes of my life, you know, mm-hmm. that we have off on weekends and that we're quote done at three o'clock. That's the biggest little horseshit I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Every um, kid named Nick Ferroni, pretty, pretty popular social media presence, good teacher, good kid has said that teaching is the only profession where we, we lose sleep over other people's kids. That's so okay, maybe yeah. doctors and nurses and people like that. But honestly, like for children, straight kids, mm-hmm. that's the truth. We're putting in more time in most cases with these kids than anyone, their parents, their coaches, anyone. And that needs to be addressed. We're, we're not only being, I would say other than law enforcement right now, we're probably the most vilified profession in the United States, which is batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine last night that's an engineer. I won't say the name of the company, but we're talking about, you know, military planes that cost $10 billion a piece a piece. Well, we can pull money off the magic money tree for that. But yet I know teachers in Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York, areas like that can't get desks, can't get books. So we're being asked to do the impossible with no funding and no assistance. How, how much have you heard our president talk about education other than to put a woman who was born a billionaire, married another billionaire, mm-hmm. wouldn't know a FAFSA loan or, or you know, a reduced lunch if she tripped over it and put her in charge of public schools? Well, she got roasted. So, she got roasted in the Senate hearing when when they were questioning her about her credentials and her knowledge of education. Right. She, she did get roasted, but. Yeah. She, she's but still, yeah, she's the still people sitting, that are yeah. running education are so mind-blowingly out of touch with it that we have no choice but to stick together. And I had I had started to see fractures among the teaching profession. Like it's hard because you're. Uh, we'll talk about it later. But one the chapter there's a chapter in the new book called "I'm Ignoring My Children Because of My Dedication to Yours," and. I've gotten more responses from that chapter than anything I've ever written. And because it resonates with a lot of educators, like we're literally almost prioritizing your kids sometimes over our own, mm-hmm. over everything. We're losing sleep. We're losing health. We're losing, uh, believe me, go back to the earlier conversation about blood pressure. Yeah. You and I both know that this profession is filled with people who are normally healthy individuals who have all sorts of physical problems because of, what we have to internalize on a day-to-day basis. I made a joke with one of my friends over Christmas, and I, but I was serious. High school teachers a lot in America right now, we, I deal with more confrontation, face-to-face confrontation with students, teenagers, parents, sometimes bosses and administrators, than some people in like a week than some people do all year. <laughs> and you know this. yeah. So that has to internalize. That has to go somewhere. For sure. This book was written specifically for me literally to stand next to everybody that reads it and go, I'm with you. I feel you. Is this, this is what you wanted to say? Yeah. How did, how has it been uh, received? Obviously like, you know, you're, you're still working at the school, you know, the administrative team at your school, they're aware of the work that you do. They're aware of your writing. 
Um, have have you received support? Have you received um, you know resistance? Um, just talk about that for a bit. In the interest of complete honesty, um, the teachers. Um, I have I have not received with this book the kind of I have not received the kind of support that I was expecting. Can I be honest? Yeah. The people and I want to I want to add this caveat not to bomb anyone's feelings, but the people who have read it and have supported it have been very outspoken, um, very supportive, uh, promoted the book, things like that. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, um, it was it was a hard pill to swallow that I put three years of my life into this and really put my arse on the line. And it's it's been received okay. The the administration, I don't worry about because they don't read it. They don't care. Yeah. They don't um actually to be completely honest with you, there is one young man that I work with who I won't say his name or his position, but I called him out in the book. Mm-hmm. He got on the announcements the day the book was published mm-hmm. and congratulated me on the fourth book, spoke very kindly about it, has promoted it. And that was about the only acknowledgement I got. Like most of the people that I work with in the school I work with do not know that they have an English teacher who published four books. I was told, I've been told by teachers in other districts, they'd have a banner to you. There'd be like a portion of a library devoted to you that, um, that's not a priority yeah. right now um, where we're at. And when, you know, one of the themes I wanted to discuss with you in your writing in general was this idea of creative flow, you know, and the, the people that I've had on my podcast, they're all, you know, super creative in their own ways. And one of the things that fascinates me the most uh, is, you know, what, what conditions need to be present for them to be at their creative best. So when you think of you at your creative best, and you said you spent three years writing this book, so there were probably moments where there was creative flow and there was moments where uh, this creative flow was stifled <coughs> for whatever reason. But if you had to think about uh, the conditions that need to be present for you to be able to produce your most creative work possible – what are those conditions for you? Hmm. And it, well, yes, this, um, one of the things about this book that stood out was I said, okay, what, what do professional writers do? They write every day mm-hmm. and they write regardless of the situation. So even though this book wound up being, I don't know, a little over 300 pages, it was probably some, 500 plus page Leviathan that got whittled down. Um, and you know, I wrote on, I wrote, you know, on my phone, on a laptop Mm. by hand on the beach, like wherever it would come. But yeah, to answer your question, honestly, it has to be early, early in the morning or late. It has to be any time where, um, I found that early, very early in the morning before people got up were, Later in the evening, after everybody was settled in, uh, I always feel like if I'm writing, and that there wasn't a lot of opportunity for that, I got to be honest yeah. with you. But for the for the best creative flow, 
I have to feel like everyone else has been attended to and all my other jobs are done. So I guess that tells you where writing falls on the priority list. Like I feel like I have to have done all my other jobs as father, teacher, um, dog walker, rabbit feeder, uh, you know, homework checker. Yeah. Everything else has to be checked off before I can really focus on that. So that the idea of, um, I guess, in knowing that that you've you've, I guess, in knowing that you have served others in your life, and knowing that all of your major responsibilities outside of yourself have completed. It reduces anxiety and and pressure and allows you to just be in the moment, to be present with writing. Yes, right. And I think in has that shifted over the years for you, or or has it always been kind of the same thing? Uh, You know, writing your best when when everything else is done and out of the way, and you can be present in the moment to produce your best work. Has that shifted over the years, or has it always been the same? Looking back, and um, probably always been that way. Uh, if I have to look back at it, but now that I, the more I've written, because this is a, for my fourth book, and I've written some articles and, and blogs and things like that, I'm able to to channel it. Like if I know I have other lingering responsibilities, as long as they're not really like priority one, have to be done immediately, I can. I can somewhat put that aside now and focus, but and get it done because I treat that like a job in and of itself. But I don't know that that'll ever change. Uh, that whole samurai mentality, like serve others first. Mm-hmm. And this is not boohoo. Okay, I mm-hmm. chose this. I, mm-hmm. I absolutely chose this, and I'm through trying to deny who I am. It is what it is, and I I, I work around that. But no, I'm. If I'm sitting here and I can't, like a lot of times if I'm working, I want to be in the most sparse place possible because, you know, little bits of OCD, like it's hard to type and look over and realize, well, that has to be kind of cleaned up and I should probably, and then it leads to one thing and another and now you're off track. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking what you said earlier about, you know, so this book obviously holds a very special place in your heart and you, you put your heart into it and, and you, you really... I guess um, you you stand out with this one for sure because you really are challenging the status quo and the people that are holding education back. But earlier in the podcast, you said, that's it, I'm done with education books. But what makes you say that so strongly? Is it, what makes you so, say that so strongly at this point that you're absolutely done with, with education books? Uh, three things in varying degrees of power, depending on what moment it is. Uh, first and foremost, there's a, um, and probably the least priority, there's a little bit of bitterness there in terms of, you know, I, I involved a lot, like I said, a lot of time and a lot of people in this book and did what so many people were asking for. And then it was kind of like, oh, yeah, great. Like, and I turned around and I felt like my hand was up in the Hunger Games yeah. and everybody had taken a giant step back. And I was like, yeah, well, thanks for that. And then secondly, you start – I don't want to become – and probably more of a priority, you don't want to become a one-trick pony. Um, I have a children's book I'm working on with my daughter. I have a novel that I've been kicking around for a long time, articles and short stories. I've said what I need to say. 
and probably the number one priority is okay. Now that I've I've laid it out there, I've been funny. Yeah, uh, I've been fantasy. I've been serious. I've been empathetic. I've written four completely different books that have generally exhausted my emotional, you know, contingency in terms of education. Now it's time to just shut up and start doing things about it uh, instead of writing about it too. You know, now yeah. I, now it's time to you know crap or get off the pot, so to speak, uh, and. Writing about it is, it'll come in small doses mm. when I'm angry or happy or motivated. Mm. Uh, but to sit down and write another book about it, I feel like would probably be uh, artistically spinning my wheels at this point. If somebody if somebody was going to invest in another book and wanted you to write another book in education, what... So, so you were doing it, let's just say you, you know, I don't want to say you were doing it for the money, but let's just say that somebody was going to invest in, in you writing a, another book and you had to take it in a direction that, um, you felt was important to you or whatever, but maybe a shift of gears, which direction would you go with a potentially new book? Just out of curiosity. That's. It's funny you ask that because somebody asked me a couple of days ago over the Christmas break. They're like, just suppose the books caught fire and the big publisher came in with a big ass check. Um, and the answer just came naturally. I was like, I would start interview. I would interview teachers from all over and focus on what works, what they're doing that works that in the classroom. Um, because it would have to be that. If, like I said, I'm not going to write, I am not going to write any more books and people are tired of hearing about what I have to say. I want to hear like, well, I, we know what's wrong now. I've kind of spelled out what's wrong mm-hmm. and confronted them and challenged people to do better. Who is doing better? Who's, who's doing it the right way? Even in small victories in classrooms and districts that might not be great. We have all these teachers doing amazing things within the four walls of their classrooms and starting with my own school and working my way out. I would, it would be a celebration of the people that are grinding away at it day to day and getting great results with their kids. Uh, I think that would be something worth writing about, worth researching and definitely worth reading about. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading a book right now that is uh, written by George Caros. So George's book, um, the Innovator's Mindset, Empower Learning, Unleash Talent, and Lead a Culture of Creativity is all about um, that idea of innovation and how innovation is not just limitless, do whatever you want, create something new. It's actually uh, working within the reality of the system that you first have to identify the realities that you face, the realities that are very difficult to change, that may never change. And then working within those constraints, you now unleash innovation. You do things differently within those constraints. Innovation traditionally has been limitless. Just create these changes. And the reality is they might work for a week, but they're not going to sustain themselves. Right? So, yeah. So in looking at the work that you do and the message that you're trying to, to give in, in your, your latest book, uh, Retribution, A Teacher Strikes Back, how might you look at change within the constraints of the realities, I guess, of, of, of what teachers face in the United States and other parts of the world, you know, but in general, how can you work within the strains yet be innovative to, innovative to, to make an impact? 
what are some tips for success that you might have? It's, well, you have to, first of all, you have to take advantage of any, any and all autonomy that you're given. Uh, I feel terrible, like legitimately bad for new teachers because they haven't earned tenure or autonomy to try to be a little more creative. It's teach to the test, teach to the test and, you know, follow the curriculum, do what you're told. So, and and I tell students this, like be patient with the newer teachers because they, they're not allowed a certain degree of creativity. They're, they're working within most of their job is constraints. Uh, and, so if you were, and I agree, by the way, with that paradigm that mm-hmm. we're not going to listen to sit around bitching incessantly about what's wrong. If we're working to improve it, that's one thing. But for right now, the restraints are what the restraints are. And you have to, I, I completely agree. You have to just observe, uh, acknowledge them and try to work within them. Um, how to do that. If you're, if you're a good enough teacher, you should be able to find a way. For example, we have the, the park testings coming up in New Jersey. I, I am. I see you. Clear on where I see I you. I see you shake book. your head as you as you mention those tests. I see you, you shake your head in disdain. But <laughs> anyways, well, I was, I, you know, when I've heard people way above my pay grade say that, you know, the reason why kids don't do well in the park is because they're not presented in a positive light and people speak negatively about them. Well, when the third chapter in your newest book is called the park and prison rape, a love story, you know, my feelings on that are pretty much out there. So, but that being said, I'm a good enough teacher that if they say, you know, we want these kids doing a little bit of park prep, I can do that and still make it relevant, uh, educationally tie it to them. I'm not going to just take the handouts they give me and say, do this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the easy way out. And, and it doesn't necessarily apply to our kids. And you know, this students are pretty for, for all their faults. They're a little savvy in terms of what they know is important. So it's almost like all the SAT and ACT tutoring. I do. I can, give you other things other than what's in the book that is relevant to you. You got to work a little, you got to find the stuff, Mm. but I can still teach you how to find pertinent text support. For example, how to tie two pieces of divergent text together, how to, I can do all that. I just have to do a lot of reading and looking around and find things that are relevant to the students. Mm. I would assume that most good teachers, I know a lot of the teachers I know do it. But you got to put the work in. You have to look for things that essentially, okay, you can buy the workbook you know, or work out of the textbook. Or you can find do the same modus operandi with something that is infinitely more relevant. And if that means you got to sit down and watch a couple episodes of Stranger Things or read, you know, whatever, you know, read Fault in Our Stars again then you have to do it, okay? Because ultimately your job is to be relevant and meaningful to the kids in front of you. You don't get, a comedian doesn't get on stage and tell the jokes he wants to hear. Uh, uh, you know, a nutritionist doesn't get up and tell the patient to take the food she wants to eat. You got to perform for the audience. The audience has to be receptive. So you, you have to put the time in. And um, Joseph Campbell always said the society has to absorb the myth. Okay, so 
that's my only answer. You, if you want to be creative within the constructs that we know exist, okay, if you, we know the matrix exists and we can see it, how do you work within it? You bust your ass to find things that are relevant and teach the same lesson with material that is interesting to the kids. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all this idea of relevancy. And and I think that's the, the Koros book that I just talked about a few minutes ago is is really all about that. And it, it seems to teachers like you and me and, and other teachers who really understand this, it seems so obvious, you know. Um, but again, teachers that face constraints often uh, are, are blinded by what they have to get done. And they don't give themselves they don't give themselves wiggle room to to do these things. But these things are what have the greatest impact. And it's like the research is now kind of showing that these things have the greatest impact on on student learning. Yet teachers have a hard time with it because they have to let go of of control. They have to place themselves at a parallel kind of like a, a level that they're they're learning along with their students. They're co-constructing learning with their students, you know, and I think and that's that's an investment in time in itself. It is, and one of the great paradoxes is that for somebody who wrote four books and does interviews, and I, you know, I'm I'm like Captain America waving the flag around here for teachers, but you know, in direct juxtapositioning to that, I'll be the first one to tell you that a lot of teachers are lazy and a lot of them need to get out of the profession because. If I'm telling you that you got to put in time and I hear them say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do, all right, well then get out. Okay. You don't belong in this profession. If that's too much work, then you need to get out because if your accountant said that or your dentist said that, you know, or a fireman came to your house and put out half the fire and said, well, that's all I'm contractually (laughs) obligated to do. You'd be pissed. But yet out of the other side of your mouth, you say the same thing. Like you're not done at three o'clock. You're not done on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, I'll give you an example, Andy. I just did an article with a 10th grade class. And when I, t- as you know, and for any of you listening out there in podcast world, if you think that I have 23 kids in a 10th grade class and they're all on a 10th grade reading level, that's the sound of teachers across America laughing. Okay. I have probably in those 23 kids, I probably got a couple on like a fourth grade reading level, at least one or two that English is their second language of those 24 kids, maybe two on the, on an actual 10th grade level. I just did an article with them before Christmas, before Christmas, which we all know is tough to tough to keep the kids engaged from the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. For those of you not familiar with the magazine, The Atlantic, get out your thesaurus, okay? It's written on about the highest level of any periodical out there. It's more than the Wall Street Journal, more than like the New Yorker, but it was about kids and cell phones and smartphones. Had to walk them through parts of it, but they're familiar with the material. They're interested in the material. So if someone comes into me and says, oh, well, that's not really following the curriculum, uh, I'm doing collegiate level writing and analysis with a class that's averaging about a fifth to sixth grade reading level. Mm-hmm. And here are the questions we answered on this, like higher level thinking, analysis, synthesis. We're not doing straight comprehension on page three. He said so it takes a lot of work. You got to read the article. You got to anticipate the words they're not going to know. You got to stress certain things, know what to chunk. 
But the work that went into that, the iceberg effect, made the class a joy. They were into it. They were talking about it. We we were. I was actually. Everything now is student-centered learning. And my answer is, well, the students don't know shit. So uh, not to be funny now, but like you want me to have them teach themselves and work in groups. What am I here for? They don't know how to do it. <laughs> so it's the training wheel thing. I'll hold the bike, training wheels. Hand comes off. Eventually, training wheels come off. Yeah. Well, if I put enough work in and facilitate this, now I actually have kids in small groups talking about an article that is so far above their reading level that they would never otherwise touch, talking about higher level you know, topics, and then talk, speaking back to me. The class time moves. They enjoyed it. They had, but a lot of work goes into making that you know, 60 minutes happen. And, you know, and, and re- referring back again, I mean, I guess I'm referring back to George's book because it's um, – it's just fresh in my mind, but it, what he says is that teaching is the most human profession that there is, and you just sum that up because it's an investment of time and energy into our craft and what we do and developing the rate relationships and, and truly getting to know the students so that you can differentiate, make it relevant. There's a lot of shit going on that that makes a lesson what it is, you know. So the the idea that teaching is the most human profession that there is, it it I couldn't agree more with with that um, that kind of statement, you know. Well, let me let me throw this out to like the average person listening uh, at home. If you had to make a, you with me? Yeah. If you had to sit down, because I know my, my wife has had to do presentations in front of boards because she's a director. I know people that have had to, you know, do speaking engagements, TED Talks like you did. You want to put together a 60-minute presentation with an audience that you know is going to be firing back, not necessarily interested. How much work goes into that? Because I do that four times a day, okay? A day, 190 days a year. So when people sit and think about that, think about what goes into that. You know, that's that's a performance. You got to be part stand up comedian, part public speaker, part, you know, confessional, part parent, mm-hmm. part. And that's with the whole Mark Twain thing about holding 21 corks underwater at the same time. We do that all day, every day. So you better learn how to I mean, a 60 minute lesson. For what people see, and that's one of the reasons why I have a big problem with teacher evaluations. Let's not get started on that. But you're going to come in and look at me for 10 minutes and tell me what I do. You don't have a first fucking idea what I do because the the amount of work that went into making that 60 minutes work efficiently is unknowable unless you do this for a living. That's like saying, hey, wow, your kids turned out really well. Right. That's why I have no hair left, why I have high blood pressure and why because the work that went into making them responsible, empathetic citizens is a never ending job. And, and it's in, and you're emotionally invested in it. Yeah. I'm not crunching numbers here. I'm dealing with human beings. What was what was that quote you said? It's the most human human profession, profession that there is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, there it is. And, you know, I, I told you that I was going to ask you this, this question, give you, give you, I told you this yesterday about 15 hours ago, uh, just to, to, you know, give you some time to think about it as you, as you slept, the subconscious was working on the, the answer, right? But, um, yeah. 
It's the idea of the razor's edge. And I, I listen, one of my favorite podcasts is uh, called Finding Mastery by Michael Gervais. And he's a top sports psychologist. He, he works with the Seahawks. He works with l- lots of different, um, lots of different professional sports teams. Um, but he talks about the razor's edge. And the razor's edge is all about like producing your best work. And in producing your best work, you're going to put yourself out on the razor's edge. And that when you're out on the razor's edge, it is both a blessing and a curse. And in being the best, the best writer that you can be and being the best father you can be and husband and teacher that you can be, um, there's a lot going on. So speak to how your passions in writing and being the best teacher that you can be are both a blessing and a curse and be specific with what the curses are and what the blessings are. Okay. That's, um, if I can be redundant for a moment, the, the chapter about ignoring my own flesh and blood children to get things done for school uh, to get papers marked, to respond to emails. That's, that's, it's so inexcusable. And yet I've done it and I'll do it again. Um, in a nutshell, I oh, no, you wanted me to be specific, uh, ignoring my own health, obviously for a couple of years, uh, ignoring or not ignoring, um, not prioritizing people close to me to, to do a job that, um, seems to so many people eminently replaceable, um, allowing my uh, ego, uh, cause I, I looked over some of the reflection questions you had sent me, mm. uh, allowing like my own inner criticism, taking things personally, allowing my own ego to get in the way. Um, the blessing is that it is in fact the most human profession. I mean, I, I have learned to take the time and acknowledge when a kid says something to me or comes back, uh, whether they're in college or working. And I mean, I have kids now, geez, my first year of teaching 25 years ago, mm-hmm. have kids of their own and tell me they read to their kids because of what I taught them. I mean, what, yeah. put that in your evaluation, stick that in your domain for, yeah. you know, I have a kid, of a young man, his middle, his son's middle name is Francis after me. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding? Like I've been to weddings, funerals. Uh, you, you get acknowledgement from these kids cards. The, you know, the, the, the stuff I get from the books is some of the most gratifying and vindicating stuff ever. Some of these emails and like Facebook posts and things from teachers, the blessings are, are myriad too many to count. Mm-hmm. Me being a, a good old, you know, teaching boy, I tend to, I'll get 500 blessings and you focus on the one curse because I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm. The curse is you, you beat yourself up. Mm -hmm. You prioritize the wrong things and you do, you put your ass out there. You, you, the razor's edge is a a good metaphor for that. Um, What's the old theory that you get 80% of the results in your life from 20% of your efforts. Um, if you're going to put yourself out there, uh, what is, what I'm probably going to butcher this, but Maslow, every moment you have a choice, 
to step back into comfort or forward into growth. So the curse is you're in an almost constant state of pain and suffering. And I don't want to overblow this. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not in a third world country. I'm not hurting for food. I'm not it just purely emotional and intellectual. If you want to be out there and you want to be doing something with your life and helping people, you are on a, going to be in a constant state of discomfort and you should be, you should be, you should feel stupid. You should feel weak. You should feel unempowered. You should feel, um, uninformed because that means you're pushing the boundaries of what you can do. You're leaving the comfort zone. Um, you would ask me about like books that influence me. Well, you know, yeah. I'm a Joseph Campbell acolyte. Yeah. The idea that the hero has to leave his comfort zone and basically get his ass kicked for 90% of the journey yeah. to come to some degree of self-awareness only to start it all over again. Yeah. There's the curse. The curse is that if you want to continue to evolve evolution, hurts it's called growing pains for a reason and you're going to be you're going to put your ass out there and not be acknowledged maybe even worse get ignored get vilified make mistakes i talked to my i have a gifted class and i confronted them a couple weeks ago because i knew things weren't going well and i said say what you have to say and of course being precocious smart kids they got together the night before and organized And it was about an hour of feeling like I was having my skin peeled off and iodine rubbed into it. They were very specific. They were honest and they were in some degrees hurt. And they, of course, they kept saying, we don't want you to take this personally. And I said, no, I do. And I, you want me to. It was a great learning lesson, but it was it hurt tremendously. And it still resonates with me to feel like what I was trying to do wasn't coming off the yeah. right way. It was being misinterpreted. But I learned a lot from that, and I grew a lot from that. Um, One of the, you know, I just want to jump onto what you're saying right now, and and it's it's so important because it's the concept of critical feedback, and we hear about feedback all the time, and we f- hear about the importance of feedback all of the time, and and the the model that my school uh, works within is all about pulling feedback rather than than pushing it, you know, that, that you actually take action as an educator to pull feedback. You want feedback. You genuinely want feedback. You don't want to be told about what you're doing well, because we generally know what we're doing well. You know, we want pats on the back, of course, but in order to improve, you have to put yourself into that uncomfortable kind of zone and to be receptive and to pull feedback. So we have a consultant that works for our school from New Zealand and he's all about, he's a hard ass and he comes in and he's all about, you got to put yourself out there. You, you're going to hear critical feedback. You have to act on critical feedback. And he shared an article, uh, which I'm just going to sum up as succinctly as I can, but it's a beautiful story from New York and it's a uh, nonprofit moving company that started up um, in order to give reformed convicts and drug addicts a chance, uh, another chance to to live and to have a job and to learn and grow. So this, this company was like, they hired convicts coming out of jail and people that, that had had numerous difficulties and um, you know, majority of society would class them as untouchable. But this company in New York said, you know what, we're going to take a chance on you. We're going to give you a chance. And they work within a model 
that they created called 200% Accountability. So this company, moving company, when they first started, they were virtually unknown. It was hard to find business, right? But the work ethic and the 200% Accountability model allowed them to really propel and to demand excellence from everybody that worked within the organization. So the idea of 200% accountability is you're not only accountable for your own actions, you're going to call me out if I screw up. There is a way that we get work done, and we are all accountable for getting work done in that way. So even though it's a moving company, it's this idea of the way they pack boxes, the way they speak to the customers, the respect that they show when they enter a person's house. And after a couple years of this 200% accountability model, this company started to rise in the ranks of moving companies in New York and started to get these amazing reviews. And now it's one of the best, yeah, one of the best moving companies in New York that is predominantly ex-convicts who have been given a second chance at life, nonprofit company. So going back to what you said, standing in front of your class, of, of gifted and talented and they get together the night before you put yourself in that position you pulled that feedback you wanted that feedback and every ed- great educator will pull feedback not only from their students but from their colleagues as well you know how am i working with you what do i need to do tell me one thing i need to do to get better you know i don't want to hear anything else just tell me what i can do and you can take it or leave it but in the end you're, you're bound, if you want to continue to grow and learn, you're bound to take action on the feedback. So let's go back to those students that, that gave you feedback. And as difficult as it was, what did you learn? Well, I went to, after that happened, I actually did it with all my classes. And as you know, like the students, they like you. If, they, if there's a relationship there, if, you, if they know you love them, they don't want to hurt you. But when you demand of them, like, come on, I really need this. I need, I want this. And they put the, the floodgates open. Um, I learned, uh, I don't know that I learned anything that I didn't already know. I just had to un- face it. Um, what will you change as a result? What little micro goal might you set um, to address that feedback or a, a change you might make? Oh, I have to start. I found myself for as much as I say, I try to personalize for the kids. I was, there were times where I was doing things that I thought were, you know, rigorous or things that I knew they needed or I thought they needed, but were a little out of touch or it sometimes came across as according to them vindictive or, um, impersonal, mm-hmm. um, my settled into my comfort zone, you know, taught things that, you know, I was excited about versus things that were exciting to them. And again, I don't think you have to placate your students, but you do have to acknowledge it. Like like we talked about earlier, understand the restrictions and work within them because you only have limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably pushed ahead more than I should have instead of staying on something and allowing them. And more than anything, I need to shut up occasionally and let them talk and get to know them better so that I can, I I try or I thought I tried to get to know my kids as individuals, but I, you know, I need to listen more and talk less. 
and, and that's, you know, again, pulling feedback. We're going to hear things that uh, we're not comfortable with, you know, and I think, but it's the, the vulnerability and the, the, the courage that it takes to pull feedback and to actually act on it, you know. So I wanted to share that moving company story because I'm so, I was so moved by that story the first time I heard it. I'll send you the article. Um, but it's, and it's a great article to share with your students, you know, but it's that idea that, that genuine feedback, we're going to hear things we don't like and, and, um, we have a choice to act on them or not. And every cohort of students you get in every year is different. The people that we work with year to year are going to be different. So it's this idea that we have to continually seek this feedback and pull this feedback, um, rather than have it forced upon us. Um, I wanted to segue over, I'm just going to read the uh, reflective questions that um, that I asked you. I've got Google Home playing in the background. We're staying at our friend's house in Japan right now, and they have Google Home, so it just pipes up every now and then in the background. So you might hear it on the podcast. But um, So I'm going to share these 10 reflective questions, Frank, and then I want you to just speak to which question resonated the most with you. Um, so actually, rather than reading them all, I'll just include them in the show notes. But there are essentially, there's nine questions that, that I came up with today. Um, and I was kind of like directing this towards myself. I thought I want to, every year I love to write reflective questions for myself at the end of the year and to try to genuinely attempt to answer them. Um, so there, it was kind of a selfish act when I was running, I was coming up with these questions and then I thought, you know what, I think they're good questions for any teacher. So I put together these, these, uh, these questions, but nine of them, there, there's questions there, but the 10th one is out of all the questions that you've read, which one stands out as being most important to you to address in, in 2018. So I guess out of the nine questions, which one stands out to you and, um, what might you you do to be more aware of it in 2018? Well, first of all, the fact that you were coming up with these while you were running for everybody listening at home, um, there's a little insight into what makes good teachers good. Mm -hmm. Like, does it ever turn off? No, it doesn't. While he was running, he was coming up with criti critically reflecting questions for teachers. Right? I, was, I was recording it on my, my iPhone as I was running, but yeah, anyway, so which one stands um, out? Can I, can I pick two? Sure. How grateful were you for the blessings in your life, both personally and professionally? Um, juxtaposed with to what extent did you allow your inner critic voice to impact you and others negatively? Because I believe both of those kind of in a yin and yang fashion, I allowed too much, the inner critic voice, the, the negative, um, the ego to, to drive what I did sometimes instead of sitting back and enjoying the little victories that come all the time in the, in the, guys of individual students you know like i you tend to you said earlier we know what we do well but I'll, far too often and one of the things i will definitely strive to do this year because you know after 25 years of teaching you think you have it mm. and what I, i'm ripping up everything i'm ripping up the subfloors knocking walls down tearing room i'm totally redoing what i thought i was doing well because i have to and that will start with 
those little victories. Like, what am I doing right? What kids am I reaching? What ones, even if it's one kid on one day, um, acknowledge that so that your battery doesn't run low and keep the ego and the inner criticisms in as much as they'll facilitate growth and, like you said, pull feedback, Mm -hmm. allow that, allow the criticism to be real and tangible and from other people. I'll have enough of that, I'm sure, without manifesting it in my own head. So focus more, it's, again, not to sound corny, but like focus more on the positive and what I'm doing right and build off of that than what I guess my students kind of told me, like be more responsive and proactive than uh, retaliatory, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, so, yeah. That's those are two things I'm going to work on a lot, right. a lot. And Neela would be proud of me. I'm going to try to be mindful. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's that idea too because I I struggle a bit myself because there's a lot of evidence that says that um, working on our weaknesses doesn't work. You know that we've been put up we've been put on the earth with strengths and and things we're really good at. And that we should, we should work to develop those strengths so that we can just absolutely thrive within our, our talents, the talents that we possess. There's Google, Google Homes going off again, but um, I see, I see no reason why those two things have to be mutually exclusive. I am very capable, as is everybody, of making my, my strengths indestructible and at the same time shoring up my, the cracks in the armor. There's there's no reason why you can't do both, and I, anybody who says you can, I disagree. Yeah, and and that's that's that can be a struggle, right? Because some schools take sure. a take a this or that approach, right? It's like work on your strengths, develop your strengths, or only work on your weaknesses. And I'm with you. I'm like we've been put on the earth with strengths and blessings and talents and passions and. And uh, we can make a difference through those strengths, but then the unlimited, you know, kind of uh, the potential to improve upon our weaknesses can raise our growth to another plateau. So, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that uh, big time. But um, I wanted to take this this uh, opportunity to segue into the uh, the hot seat round, which is the, uh, the final part, baby. Um, I sent you for... Um, areas that we're going to explore. So the hot seat questioning is all. I got to be honest with you. I didn't look at them because I wanted my answers to be off the cuff. Yeah. Okay. So I love it. If there's an uncomfortable pause, it's just me not overthinking, and I'm just going to blurt out the answers. And and that's just you know a little bit of think time is okay. You know. So uh, what'll happen is you answer it without any detail at all. You just you just answer the question, and then. To close off, you will revisit one of the areas that resonated the most with you in the hot seat questioning, and then give us one last piece of advice related to that area, okay? Gotcha. Okay, so we're ready to go. Ding, ding. Speed round question number one. The greatest book you've ever read outside of education that is applicable, that you can extract meaning from and apply it back to the world of education and the work that you do. Okay, that's an easy one to start. Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that book. Uh, we talked about it in our second podcast. Um, number two, you're going to complete this sentence. You ready for this one, big boy? Yeah. Yep. Okay. My biggest fear is. 
being a disappointment to my children. Number three, the greatest lesson your parents ever taught you. Separate was my parents weren't, you know, they got divorced. So parents, both of them. Then. My life. So my mother, that uh, the world is a classroom that, you know, you can learn. Beautiful. That learning isn't just confined to school, uh, particularly reading and things like that. My father, that do it right the first time. In other words, it takes more time to do something half-assed and then fix it than it does to do it right the first time. And you'll, you'll build a culture of doing things correctly. Was your mom a teacher? Just to, on a side note. No, my mom was, she just prioritized. I was, I, I've been reading since, oh my God, if, if words are true from the time I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper, that was always a, a priority. Yeah, that's great. Okay. And the uh, last question is if at the end of your career, somebody was to write a book about Frank Stepnowski's career, what would the title of that book be? Ankara Imparo. Okay, there we go. So now what you're going to do, you're going to reflect on one of those four areas. So you're going to reflect on the best book you've ever read, your biggest fear, the greatest lesson that your mother and father ever taught you, and uh, the, the book title if somebody was to write a book about your life. And leave us with, you know, choose that one area that resonated the most with you in regards to the hot seat questioning and leave us with one last piece of advice. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to embrace my inner English teacher and bring everything that we talked about full circle here. The book title, uh, Ankara Imparo, I Am Still Learning, which is apparently what Michelangelo's, like one of his last words. Um, if you think as a parent, as a teacher, and a, you know, I'll argue that they're very often the same thing. I teachings, parenting with a paycheck sometimes, uh, a coach, anybody as a leader. If you think that you have all the answers, one, you're wrong, and two, you're not doing your job to the best of your abilities. That goes back to everything we talked about, keeping yourself physically in shape so that you're viable and, and uh, virile. Pulling criticism so that you're constantly evolving, even if it hurts, working on the weak things, all the stuff we just talked about in the last hour. If you're not in a constant state of learning about yourself and about the people you're trying to help, you're not doing your job as best you can. So that awareness that you still have a lot to learn and rebuild, no matter how old or how experienced you are at something, is paramount to being a good teacher. So that's my piece of advice would be no matter how good you are, you still got a long way to go. And 200% accountability is a pretty damn good place to start because if there's a problem, you know, as the saying goes, there are no weak soldiers under a strong general. Mm. And if you're going to take the general topic or title, then you better damn well be ready for the responsibility that comes along with it. Yeah, that's great advice. And I just think like, you know, the world I live in, like, I mean, my own personal world, and I can't imagine what it's like not to learn and want to learn and want to, to grow. And I think that, you know, in assuming positive 
presuppositions about people in general, there has to be an, an innate desire to want to learn to get better. But then people experience constraints and failure and obstacles, and they've been brought up in a way and they've learned in a way that has uh, allowed these things to hold them back and prioritize the direction they're going in their life and dictate the direction that they're going in their life. So, you know, when I have people like you on my podcast, it's all about, uh, you know, embodying in the work that you do, really embodying that desire to constantly learn and grow is not just bullshit. You're not just saying it. You actually live it every day. And I think that is is a really noble thing, especially as an educator, to, to hold that passion for learning, you know, because that's what pushes you forward and makes you do the best work possible for your students. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Frank, to close off the show, my man, so you're going to be um, 50. So now let's go back to 50 for 50. Okay, because we're going to revisit this and and we're just going to suss out where we're at with this. So I'll I'll just give the listeners just a little snippet into the backstory. Uh, So Frank Stepnowski, um, the 215-pound, 6'4 monster in front of me right now, former 300-pound monster, 290 monster, right? Yeah. Right? Um, Yes. You're going to be 50 when? January 21st. Yes, and I'm going to be 50 January 23rd. Um, so we're literally like, uh, born two days apart, which is, I still love that. I love that, that coincidence. So in, in, um, we started to talk about this last year about, you know, cause we've, we've connected for the last few years, uh, through our good friend, Ross Halliday, who we haven't given a shout out to, but Ross is in Vietnam living life and loving being an administrator facing his own challenges, um, in the role. But, um, you know, it's that idea that behind the scenes, we've gotten to know one another and we decided to to throw a little curveball to one another and say, you know, in our 50th year on Earth, we're actually going to meet in person. So I haven't met you in person, but I feel that when we meet in person, we'll just take off where we left off on any podcast we've recorded. But we came up with a, a, a plan. We wanted a challenge and adventure. And the one I threw out to you a, a few months ago was that we do a 50-kilometer trail run. So for you uh, Americans that work uh, in the Imperial System uh, miles, that would be about 30 miles, roughly. Uh, a trail run on the ski slopes of uh, just outside of uh, North Toronto by two hours. So uh, I'm hoping that we can still do that in July, the third week, Frank, we meet. And it's not about breaking world records, man. It's about it's about walking 50K if we have to, but completing it. So I'm just throwing it out there to you. Are we? And we call it 50 for 50 because it's our 50th year and we're going to do 50K to, to celebrate that. So where are we at in that process, big man? Uh. <laughs> From this end, we're still there's a lot of trepidation over the length. Um, I feel like I'm asking you to do a powerlifting competition a year after you started lifting. Like I, I ran, I did the Rocky Run in Philadelphia, and I did the 10 mile version, and by that was by far the longest I've ever run. Um, so, and I've done you know, I, I, there's not a lot of places to hike in New Jersey. We're generally flat. Yeah. So getting elevation is hard. Me too. In the um, desert of Saudi Arabia. Me too, brother. <laughs> I am. I am absolutely down for doing it. The length. I know there are multiple lengths of this thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about like 
50 K to start, but you know, if it, if, if it scares you, you should probably do it. And so yeah, I'm, and, I'm in. And the thing is though, that, that when we say 50 kilometers, I mean, we can, we can walk parts of that. And this is, this was, these were my motivational talks behind the scenes to you. We can walk brother. We can do it. It might take 12 hours, but we can do it. However, we still have the option of, um, the 26 K um, which would be, you know, if we double it, we both did 26 K. So that's kind of like uh, 50 for 50 still. So let's just throw it out there that, um, in our pursuit, endless pursuit of knowledge, experience, wisdom, and wonder, we, we will meet next summer in person to, to walk some mountains. We will figure out the distance that's, as we move forward. That's a given. Yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm definitely in. <laughs> I plan on being side by side with you in July for sure. Um, that's that's not nothing's going to change that i love it hey frank as always thank you very much for being on my podcast uh our third episode together uh 75th episode um and uh it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you and and to learn about your own learning and and how you continue to strive to make a difference in the lives of others so thanks brother thank you very much for having me andy love you brother okay Uh, Everybody, thanks for listening to this episode with uh, Frank Stepnowski, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.